Now the boys are ready. (laughs) I'm well aware it's me and the boys. That has not escaped my attention. (laughs) That wasn't on the... <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. So tonight I want to talk about one of the um, key insights that liberates the heart and mind that we've we've mentioned in passing, but that the Buddha spoke about quite frequently, which is that insight the clear seeing into impermanence, or the word anicca in the Pali language. This is from the Buddha. Bhikkhus. Bhikkhus is like monks or those meditating, so all of us. Bhikkhus. When the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sense, sense desire, all lust, all craving, It eliminates all um, craving for becoming. It eliminates all ignorance. It uproots all the confusion, the wrong view of I am. Those four things are like shorthand for completely freed heart and mind. And I think I, I really like that quote because of the specificity of it, the perception of impermanence when developed and cultivated. Do you remember that we've been talking about perception? I talked about perception a a few nights ago and how um, one of the base uh, kind of repetitive sources of our confusion is the repeated misperception, right? I mentioned the three inverted perceptions, one being that we perceive in what is impermanent, we perceive permanence. And we develop and repeatedly practice that without having a clue that that's what we're doing, right? And so I really like it, as Sidney says, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated. So that's just what I want to talk a bit about tonight. I'm just kind of pointing to um, just different ideas I have. It's certainly not the whole picture of, of why the habit of... Mis, of, of perceiving permanence, really. Why, one, some of the reasons that come to my mind when I think about it, why, it, why we, we kind of persist in it. And also how steady awareness. Guess what? That's the thing that helps us see, see through it. And let me say, when, in this quotation that I read, that eliminates all you know, craving and all craving for becoming, that may not be something that's a familiar language to some of you, the craving for eliminates ignorance, okay. Conceit, confusion of I am, okay. So becoming, this is a very simple definition. I don't want to go into it more, but this is from Ajahn Chah. Anything that we attach to and put a meaning on is becoming. Whenever we see anything as self or other or belonging to ourselves, Without the wise discernment, without the wisdom to know that such is only a convention, that is becoming. 
And that sense of self experience, and then we become, we become the person who wants the banana, the person who feels too hot, the person who's, you know, we've talked about, but just that attaching to anything as me, the person with the hurt leg is becoming. And that becoming gives birth to the sense of self experiencing happiness or unhappiness. So that's a whole nother talk, but I just wanted to define what becoming is. And for the simplicity of talking about it now, it's simply when there's that leaning forward, that clinging, attaching to anything, a sense, desire, a view, an opinion, uh, my leg, without the discernment to realize, oh, this is a convention. That's all. So that's what becoming means. Anyway, the perception of impermanence cuts through all this confusion. It's really the doorway to liberation. One of the main entryway doors. The seeing dukkha is another one. Dukkha, the, the unreliable suffering aspect. And, and the perception of anatta, of, of not-self, is another doorway. Kind of different ones light up for each of us, but they all three work together. So tonight I want to talk about impermanence. And in one way it's kind of interesting because of those three, the fact that things change is really the most intellectually obvious, isn't it? I mean, no one would probably wouldn't argue with that. So how is it, we, what's he saying we don't see impermanence, you know? But it's like, why is it so hard to see it? And why do we need to cultivate the perception? Because the, the, I think I talked the other night about how uh, insight, liberating insight is really, it's not that reality changes, but our perception shifts. We shift of perception and then we see, we recognize it differently, we understand more accurately, and thus we respond and react in a way that's, commensurate with what's really going on. And so the thing is with impermanence, the fact of everything's in constant flux, even if we intellectually may know this from our own, to some extent our experience from reading science and stuff, it's an intellectual knowledge. And the perceptual shift that comes over and over and over one time doesn't really could do it. I, I think of it as like a cellular, a cellular living from knowing impermanence. Not having to stop and think about it, but the, the, the plans, the, the ways that we respond as if things are going to stay the same just doesn't happen. So that cellular knowing, it's on a much more subtle level. And that's, that's the nature of insight. That's how our reality changes, our understanding of reality. But what's interesting to see when we start thinking, sometimes when people start thinking really in depth, and as I talk about it some, some, you may think, okay, that's enough already to think about impermanence. It's not like the most cheery thought usually. Um, I forgot what I was going to say about (laughs) This is really bad. Okay. Oh, I know what I'm going to say. It is impermanent. It's very impermanent, this mind. Now, as I had it. See, I would just had it. And then you said that. And it pushed it out. <laughs> it's going to be another long night. Um, oh, no. It's lurking around back there. Oh, well, never mind. Oh, I know. We may think 
in thinking about it from the place of not really getting it on a cellular level, it can sound a little scary or depressing or the what will it be like to live if everything's changing? How can I function? As if it's not impermanent now, (laughs) right? And when we have the insight, suddenly everything's changing. That's what I was trying to say. It's like, no, this is how it already is. It's not like we're going to lose something by recognizing accurately. It can only help. It can only help. So I just want to like, just point at three different ways I've noticed in my mind kind of the, the not recognizing, not the not perceiving impermanence or kind of things that veer my mind away from wanting to. Um, and one is the, our, our fear of the unpleasant, our, our habit of not being with it. And when we're really opening to the fact that every meeting ends in parting, for example, it's this instinctive fear of loss, of grief, of sadness. You know, we don't want to feel it and we have the, the habit that something unpleasant is bad, right? The whole thing about learning to bring this equanimity and awareness to whatever's arising, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. But our habit is, you know, when confronted with the potential of loss and sorrow and grief, no, bad. So we kind of, even though we can't avoid it, we kind of shut it away a little bit, or that can be a habit. That's one thing I want to point to. I want to point to what I have already, the misperception, the not recognizing impermanence right when it's in our face, and the uh, inattention, the lack of attention, which is all of just the spacing out, the lack of attention to just what's in front of us, three aspects. In the culture I grew up in, you know, there's many cultures within this country, but in the culture I grew up in, um, old age is around, you know, but even now, you know, kind of not so present, not, not living in a, you know, in a multi-generational family or house. And death in particular is kind of tidied up and um, kind of, you know, just kept minimal. You don't really have it, I didn't really have it in my face. So I just want to tell this little story, kind of the sense of how, for me, the society uh, was also uh, part of the conditions of just not really seeing all the aspects of life right in front of my face as life goes on, you know? Um, a few years ago, I was teaching, I was helping to teach a retreat in northern Burma in the, in the hills of Sagain outside Mandalay. And it's a retreat that uh, was not Burmese people were doing the retreats, a retreat with a Burmese Sayadaw, a couple Western teachers, but for foreigners. So mostly it was, that meant Europeans, Americans, some Australians, a few. And then uh, Western teachers and managers and such. So, and the, this is in the hills of Sagan. It's right on the Air Wadi River, big river. Lots of nunneries and monasteries all around. It's in a small village. So one afternoon, we the the staff of the retreat that we were Westerners, we were walking along the river bank, and um, we got down just a little bit down the down about maybe half a mile, not even. And right, right, it's the river, there's the road, and then there's, you know, different nunneries and monasteries. So we got even with a nunnery where we've been, teach, been there a few years, we knew a lot of the nuns, a lot of the monks, and someone with us spoke Burmese. So as we got near there, along the wall, which is right along the river, the river and the river um, people, you know, that's their mode of transportation, people plant things along, it's very much part of people's lives. 
oh, the whole community, all the nuns from the nunnery we knew and all the monks and all the lay people were all lined up along the wall and all looking over the river. And this is very unusual, maybe 80 people or so. So we came, well, what's going on? And they said three young novice monks, young boys, 12, 13, had been out playing in the river, playing in a rowboat, and one of them had gone down and hadn't come back up again. And uh, he was a new, new monk from, from f- far away. He wasn't so used to the river. He wasn't from around there. So they, some, some men were down trying to find him, but it had been an hour, you know, so you knew he was going to be dead when they found him. So we were hanging out. So the whole community's there. The little, little, there's some little tiny girl nuns, like four or five, six years old that we knew. They were, everyone was there. And um, they found the young boy's body, brought it up. And then this is what was so interesting to us is just the, what proceeded from that, which is the whole community is there and right, right by the road, there's a big solid, it's like a big, a big room, a big platform with a roof, but no walls just sitting right there. And they use it for all kinds of things. So they brought his body in there. Someone went to his parents for a 24 hour ride away. So it was going to be a while before they could come. So the whole community, the monks, the nuns, oh, the little boys that had been with him ran away because, of course, they were scared. So some of the monks went to find them, to, to soothe them, to comfort them. It was this really sense of taking care of everybody. They took the young boy, they wrapped him, they, they ran up, and, uh, up to the monastery, got clean robes, washed him, put him in his clean robes. And then, and so these little girl nuns were there and they knew him and they were seeing the whole process and everybody was part of it. And then they sat down, some of the nuns, some of the monks, and they were going to just take turns chanting and hanging out with him until his parents came in another day or another 24, 30 hours. And it was just all right there. And I mean, everyone was sad, all the normal emotions, but it was just all part of, part of the village life. And one of us, one of my friends who was you know, managing the retreat at the time, she said, I'm 47 years old. I've never seen a dead body of a person. And just, just, uh, just kind of like the difference from how I was brought up. And more the naturalness, you know, of really... Because, de- okay, when we talk about impermanence, death is the big one. I'm going to talk about it in smaller ways. But just that, that sense of the naturalness, because that's, that's how it is. And when the way things are is kind of hidden from us for various reasons, or we're just not in the habit of noticing, it feeds our inattention. It feeds our misapprehension, our misperception without even knowing it. And then we get, you know, uncomfortable, afraid, ill at ease. We think there's something wrong if we feel those things instead of really as part of life. People were sad, people were crying, people were trying to soothe the kids, and that's all part of life. Nothing wrong with it, nothing to avoid. So I'm calling this kind of resistance or denial, resistance. So two aspects I want to just, and this is just from my mind, highlight is the, the resistance to the sadness of loss, you know, are kind of trying to avoid that. And uh, the corollary, so that that's, dosa aversion, the cor- it always comes back, I um, hate to tell you guys, to the calatious. They just, <laughs> when we're suffering. The resistance to the, the sadness 
And the corollary is our mind gets into clinging, holding on, leaning, all kinds of stuff to, to look for some security. I mean, it's not quite so obvious, but watch and see how we're doing it. So, it's human. Death, loss, sorrow, grief, it's human. You know, it's not that it shouldn't be happening. It's part of life. And so I feel in terms of, in my experience in practice, not to have the idea, if I'm practicing correctly, I won't feel grief. Or if I'm practicing correctly, sadness won't come up, you know? But more not resisting or judging or blaming. Just see it's a natural function of loss in this life, but it doesn't have to be when met with awareness any more than that. It comes, you see it, it goes. We still see the impermanence even within that. But it's, it's human. There's a wonderful story from the time of the Buddha, from the Buddha, about his attendant, Ananda, who was a, his attendant for the last 25 years of his life. And if you read the, the suttas, the, the, the discourses of the Buddha, the ones that have come down, it, it, there are a lot of them. But Ananda's in a lot of them, because he was always with the Buddha. And he's, um, he's somewhat awakened, but not completely awakened, right? So he's kind of like a, a humanizer, you could say, in terms of, of the suttas. And he's also, his personality comes through as a really kind, a loving person. He totally supports the Buddha, has deep faith, but his function, rather than trying to keep people away, is how to get people to ha- hear the teachings. He's just very kind. So, in this sutta, the Buddha is it's the, the sutta of, of his death, his last days, and he's talking to his close monks about the fact that he's going to die soon, and they're talking kind of about the procedures and, and cremation and stuff like that. And suddenly he realizes that Ananda is, has disappeared. And he says, uh, where has Ananda gone? Although, of course, he knew. But he said, where has Ananda gone? Go find him for me. So Ananda went in, had gone into his lodging, and he stood lamenting, leaning against the doorpost. And he was weeping and saying, alas, I am still a learner with much to do. And the teacher is passing away, who was so compassionate to me. And so this guy, he's heard every talk the Buddha gave for 25 years. <laughs> and he really loves him and he's weeping. It's just really touching. This is, this is life. Of course, the Buddha, so the Buddha said, go, friend, go find friend Ananda. And when Ananda came, sat down in the, and the Buddha said, enough, Ananda, do not weep and wail. Have I not already told you that all things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable? subject to separation and becoming other? How could it be, Ananda, since whatever is born, become, compounded, is subject to decay? How could it be that it should not pass away? This is no other way, you know? And so it's not that it's bad to weep and, and, and feel grief. We do. That's just what's happening. But at the same time, recognizing there is no other way. And then he goes on to say, Ananda, you have been showing loving kindness in body, speech, and mind, beneficially, blessedly, wholeheartedly, unstintedly. You have achieved much merit, Ananda. Make effort and in a short time, 
your mind will be free, your heart will be free of corruptions. So that's his way of just really, you know, of compassion. Saying, this is really how it is. And I, I love that, like when, you, you know, we might hear him saying, don't you get it, nothing, everything changes. But he's not saying it like you stupid jerk. He's saying it, you know, <laughs> he's saying it as hearing the truth can cut through our delusion. Anandi is saying with all the compassion in his heart, how could it be otherwise? And so just, just to see that for ourselves, but without flinching away or fearing or judging the sorrow and the grief, it's going to come. It's part of, you know, how our minds and bodies work, as long as we still think there's some chance for it to be other. It's poignant. And um, for me, it's kind of, a, if the grief is strong, let the sadness, let the resistance be a wake-up call. The Buddha often used this fact of impermanence as a, as a teaching tool, as a way to just wake up and say, oh, I'm really upset. What, what's really going on here? Not I shouldn't be, but what's really going on here? You know, and then see how much there's a sense of just wanting somewhere to land, wanting some stable ground, not wanting to lose things. But we don't need to run from that. We don't need to run from shaky ground. Mm. This sense of using change as a teaching tool is something that's accessible to us. That's why I started with a story about the young guy dying, because death is always available. This is a short one, but, you know, Steve Jobs in, in 2005 when he was finding out he was really, you know who Steve Jobs is, right? <laughs> Ananda, maybe not. Steve Jobs, yes. Okay. <laughs> when he knew he was having, um, I think he had a liver transplant. And he was giving a speech at a graduating students at Stanford. And I didn't hear the whole speech, but they said about a third of it he was talking about death. Because it was imminent for him. I just want one, one quotation. He said, Remembering I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I have ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because when we're looking at things the way they really are, you know? He says, and you're naked, you know? What is it we're trying to get it right, you know? Those of you who remember the 60s may remember the whole Carlos Castaneda things. It's kind of gone into obscurity then. But, but Don Juan was always saying, make death your advisor. Make death your advisor. Not in a, in a heavy way, but it's like, yeah, when you look at that, then what's really important? We look at that in our lives. So seeing the habit, the, the fear of the fear, the the judgment that something's wrong, if we feel grief and something's wrong, this shouldn't be happening. Saying, so, no, this is how it is. And awareness sees this is how it is. And what comes up is the next arising experience we meet with awareness. We start to see clearly the steadiness of awareness. So then what I see, and really, this is where the seeing impermanence frees the heart and mind from clinging, even just in a moment. The kind of... Um, reaction to the fact that we can't really rely on anything. It doesn't, this doesn't make sense, although this is what we do. The fact that everything's changing, all meetings end in parting, we will all die, we will all lose whatever. 
So we react to that by clinging like crazy to, you know, whatever comes up that might give us some sense of stability or security. The mind that wants some, you know, I don't know about you, but my mind really hates uncertainty. You know, not knowing what's going to happen, shaky ground, you know, just, but that's all of life is shaky ground. I heard uh, on the radio a couple, probably a couple of years ago, uh, on the news, on NPR, on public radio, talking about the European debt crisis at the time, about a year and a half ago, when it was really big in the news. And this was like, with, with, this was completely serious. I mean, this is serious, but... So they talk about the European debt crisis, its effect on politics and government, and saying, they, so this is the quotation, politics is being driven by the stock markets, and the markets hate uncertainty. So they pressure this or that government, this or that political figure, and they give examples, to either this person should stay, or this person should resign, or this person should do X, Y, or Z, so that there can be certainty in the stock markets. What world do these guys think they're living in? Is there certainty in the stock market? (laughs) The stock markets hate uncertainty. There's nothing but uncertainty. This was said with such serious, you know, as if that made sense, you know? It's completely insane. But that's really, what can I do to get certainty? Where can I find some place to rest? The Buddha said... um, The search for a resting place is burning. It burns our heart and mind. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. And that's the the, the clinging. I've got to find something I can rely on. That's that samsara. It's burning. When, okay, this moment is like this. You've had moments like that here, right? Just the space around, oh, cool and peaceful, stepping under that nibbana tree, you know, out of the burning. But the habit of clinging, the sense of just if I get something steady, it'll make me feel at ease. It's so in there. We read this a little bit of a poem from Galway Canal. I really like it's long, but I just picked out a couple of stanzas that speak to this is called Little Sleep's Head Sprouting Hair in the Moonlight. You scream, waking from a nightmare. When I sleepwalk into your room and pick you up and hold you up in the moonlight, you cling to me hard, as if clinging could save us. I think that you think I will never die. I think I exude to you the permanence of smoke or stars even as my broken arms heal themselves around you. I have heard you tell the sun, don't go down. I have heard, I have stood by as you told the flower, don't grow old, don't die. Little Maud, yet perhaps this is the reason you cry, this the nightmare you wake screaming from, being forever in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. I really like that. We are in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. It doesn't have to be anything, because each moment then can become so fresh 
and new when we're not like holding on to dear life to try and keep it some way. I'll say more about that, but this holding on is what breeds the fear. Clinging breeds fear. Clinging breeds suffering. I was just starting to notice this sense of how much we want to hold on. And this clinging is what keeps us from it's what gets in the way of accurate perception. Because we, back to that, we don't want to be in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. So first we don't think about the house that falls. It's somebody else's or it was a mistake. We don't want to be in the pre-trembling. We don't want to be in the trembling. We actually just don't really want to know. <laughs> it's just maybe this is going to be how it is. Finally, I got to the safe place. I mean, I've watched my mind do that so many. Just here, just, just going through mental states. And finally you get to a nice one, right? Okay. Ah, I landed here. I finally got here. It's just such a habit of our minds. So I started talking about, you know, noticing impermanence in, in the big things of death. But really the perception of impermanence, we're talking moment to moment to moment. I uh, heard, um, once I was at a teaching of the Dalai Lama, but I think he said this a lot. He was talking about impermanence and how we think we see impermanence, but what we don't notice is how much we're assuming permanence, which is a kind of delusion. So he says, you know, we don't notice the momentariness of change. We notice the big changes. Sometimes we don't even notice those, but we notice the big changes when something begins. Then it abides and then it dissolves, right? That's sort of how we think about change. Maybe my life begins, it abides and dissolves, even though we know we're different every moment. It feels like I'm here for these amount of years, 60s, whatever years, we're here, we're abiding, and then it'll go somewhere down the road. Or even, you know, the day starts, or even a sitting, or even a mood. Here it abides, it goes away. But it's not. There's no abiding. There's nothing abiding for a period of time, staying the same. It's momentary. It's like nine billion plus nanoseconds in one second. I read that some scientific thing. And even the Buddha talked about so many mind moments in the blink of an eye. Trillions, I don't know how we count, but so many. That's how fast stuff is changing. Changing so fast we can't literally perceive it. But then we get in the habit of our mind just stretching out things because there is a lot of momentary change our senses can perceive when we're really steady with the awareness. We think things arise due to conditions, it stays a while, it goes away. No, no. We're not the same in two seconds. It's not the same. You know, the um, kind of time-lapse photography, a a yogi, a meditator, told me this once, the insight she had into impermanence, and I've loved the image ever since, where she was watching a a time-lapse video of a flower growing. I mean, we've seen that, you know, where it kind of bursts out of the ground, and it comes, and the the stem comes, and the leaves come, and the flower comes, and then it falls down. You know, it's, it's far out to sea. If you're watching that, We know it's all speeded up, but that that's what's going on. 
And when we see it moving like that, there's, there's not really a place that you could stop it and say, that's the flower, you know? It's all the dirt and the air and the sun and the water and it's moving and there's grass and it starts to come and it turns into the woody fiber of the thing. But when does it change from air and soil and water to woody fiber and leaves and flower and falling and rotting and back to the soil? And every, you know, second, it's different. And it's not just flower, right? You can't separate it from the environment, from the seeing of it. It's all constant. Every single minute is different. Continual opening, this constant flow. That's impermanence. Things as they have come to be in this moment. But this moment is faster than that. Things as they have come to be isn't just that we're sitting here for nine days. How much has happened in your mind since you've been here, huh? Oh God, that's right. How many thoughts have arisen? You don't even want to know. How many moods? How many breaths? It's like amazing. It's, what's interest, interesting is how we kind of shine on and not really take that in, even though we're seeing it. When somebody said once at the end of a month retreat here, they said, it's been like 28 days and absolutely nothing has happened in these 20. We've just been here for 28 days. But on the other hand, every moment, is so much is happening. She meant in the big picture, nothing has happened. You get up, you sit, you walk, you go back to bed. But <laughs> really, nothing happened, right? You go home, people say, what did you do? I got up, I sat, I walked, you know. Like you, you can't, there's not that much you can really say to people who don't meditate about what it was like. So don't try, I'll tell you that tomorrow. But, but on the other hand, 10 million things are happening in every hour. Noticing that, there's a... Um, a friend, another friend, said on a retreat years ago, she said, I've been meditating for years and years, and she had. And she said, I've, all I've known for years I've seen impermanence, this fact that everything's changing, just like that flower. But this retreat, I'm suddenly getting it. Oh, me too. <laughs> I'm not just sitting here watching everything else change. That's what I am. No difference. No separation. What we're calling me is different every second, every nanosecond. So it's the, it's the, the kind of the clinging, the holding on that we don't see. Not a big clinging, but just that idea, a sensation, a memory. Now we're remembering, like you come in and like in, in groups, you start talking about what's going on. If you really look, it's probably, that's probably not going on anymore, right? It was going on, even if you think it was going on five minutes before. I mean, that's what we have to do to talk. But it's not really happening anymore. You know, go to report, you know, yeah, anyway. Just, it's just changing like that. So when we go to look for what's happening, the way we use thought usually is useful, but it distorts our perception. It can get in the way where we believe the thought rather than bringing our awareness back to the immediacy of perception and just... This moment, this moment, this moment, seeing how fast everything is changing. You can't make really anything solid. This is from Pema Chodron. She's talking, she's talking about emptiness, but emptiness really meaning emptiness of intrinsic separate self-existence. So it doesn't mean nothing's there, but like you could say, the flower's empty of separate flowerness because it includes everything. Yeah. And so she says, um, 
You recognize this by not clinging, by not making a something of anything. That's what um, Ajahn Chah was saying. If I take the flower and make a flower of it in that moment, this is a subtle clinging. It's not here, but I've, I've frozen everything. The flower has become separate from the dirt and the air and from me and from rotting. And, you know, it's like now it's a flower. Later it'll rot, but now it's this unchanging thing. So she says we recognize this constant change by not not resting in any experience, not making something, by keeping on going. She says, everything is a verb. There's no thingness. Everything is a verb. Interesting, huh? And then she told this funny story that some people have told me they've heard. I hadn't. I like it. With two, with Dingo Kensi Rinpoche, who's a great Tibetan master, and Trungpa Rinpoche when he was alive. And they were together in Bodhgaya or somewhere, sitting under some tree, they were, you know, she's sitting together, she said, like for two, three hours, just in silence, but really together, just happy and silent and beaming. And after about three hours, uh, Chogim Trungpa broke the silence. And with a huge smile, he looked at Dingo Kensi Rinpoche and pointed to a tree. And with a huge smile, he said, they call that a tree. And they both cracked up, just <laughs> totally cracked up, you know. The sense of, you know, we do call it a tree that's useful, but then we call it a tree and we think it's this solid thing when it's a verb in constant change, in constant motion. And when we, not that, not that you can try and see that way. We know it's not in our control. Now I'm going to see impermanence every time I look around. Because the misperception, the perceiving of permanence is such a, a habit, we don't even know we're doing it but bringing it into our mind and just starting to tune in, you'll notice it more and more and more. And this is where the most important thing is, guess what? Steadiness of awareness. Steadiness of awareness. Nisargadatta Maharaj, have you heard of him? He was an Indian um, teacher. So I wrote a, a book of, of conversations with him that was translated into English really well, called I Am That. It's a great, great book if you ever feel like reading something non-Buddhist. Anyway, he said, we miss the real by lack of attention and create the unreal by excess of imagination. Right? Totally, totally. So our job, if we start trying to think and look for something, let me see how everything's changing, that's actually imagination looking for something. We don't know how it should be. But lack of attention, that's what we're learning about. We're learning how to be interested in awareness, which just is present 100% with whatever's arising right now. Right? That's all we've been practicing. It's profound. That steadiness of awareness, just now, just now, just now, is how reality reveals itself. It's not like we have to figure out what do I need to do to find impermanence. Like I said in the beginning, that's how it is. We don't have to do anything to find it except keep showing up to what's happening right now with as much clarity and as little distortion as possible and the wisdom will reveal things for itself. We can notice when our habits of mind are falling into the habits of unwillingness to really show up. Those are habits. They're going to come. 
Meet those with kindness. That's what we've been saying. Really just see them. But notice them. And that's sort of like a, um, a clue. I think I'm really present and I start to notice a version in the mind. It's not like, oh, bad. It's like, huh, that's interesting. What's the kind of not wanting to be with right now? And you get interested in what's it not wanting to be with right now? What's the mind not wanting to be with right now? Not a big psychological analysis, just what's happening right now? Interested to see. So the steadiness of mindful awareness, moment after moment, is what's going to reveal impermanence over and over and over. And just to give an example of how we... um, we draw things out and cling for stability and make us steady something that we don't see change. Going back to my friend who said, oh, everything's changing and now I realize it's me too. Um, and we've mentioned this a little, I think, in the sense of our idea of ourself. There's a word in Pali, Sakaya Ditti, which means identity view or personality view. View, that word Ditti, view is like a description we've made that we don't even realize is a description that we think is true. And we've talked some about this in terms of ourselves, but just to see how the steadiness of awareness breaks this down. It gets really interesting. We've said some of this before. So the way one Burmese Sayadaw, Sayadaw Ulakana, who's the Sayadaw I was teaching with in Burma that year, he describes the momentary construction of personality view because everything's momentarily constructed and falling apart. That's the thing with difficult stuff, too. It's also not arising, staying, 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 and then go away. It's not just the pleasant stuff that's arising and going away quickly. Also, the unpleasant stuff isn't staying, staying, staying. It's constantly being created and falling, created and falling. And so this personality view, he says, the way you can see it begin in a moment is, okay, back to the six sense objects, the six things that the six experiences, right? You remember that from every talk we've given. <laughs> so whatever, sometimes when you feel like there's a momentum of awareness and you're not feeling too caught in everything, you notice how, you know, there's seeing or you're hearing and a mood comes, a thought comes, and there, it's just kind of coming and going faster or slower and there's not really a problem. You have a sense of that? You're not saying, oh God, everything's changing. Oh God, I need something to land. And you're not even thinking, I, anything in particular. You're not going, oh, great, know me. It's just stuff is happening in awareness, right? Thinking back, you can get a sense of the piece of that. You notice that's going along, and suddenly some particular thing arises, and whop, that's me. I mean, we usually don't say that's me, but that's how it feels. Something's been kind of pulled out. I don't like that sight. I don't like this mood. What is that person doing, you know? And we don't even realize that that's a perception and a thought that we're glomming onto, or a memory or anything. But you get a sense of how it's kind of, kind of pulled out of, only way of talking, kind of pulled out of the flow. It's really the mind kind of, the clinging just goes around it. And that's me or mine, just right in that moment. Birth of personality view. And when the awareness kind of stops then. That's when it starts to feel permanent. And uh, I think Steve pointed to this, how actually what we're thinking of as me, the way we're describing ourselves, is changing all the time. But when we don't have steady awareness, we don't notice that. And even though it's a completely different experience, we still think it's the same me. You know what I mean? I'll give an example, very simple one of a friend um, who was... um, 
Patricia's cooks cook used to cook here on retreats, a very dear friend and long, long time practitioner. And she was saying, she told me one time she was came to sit for the day and she'd um she'd been working and working with friends, she was a cook and her friends were telling her, where they were discussing, that basically saying, she said, I think I'm a really aversive type person. I have a lot of aversion. And all her colleagues and friends said, yeah, that's right, you really do. (laughs) (laughs) So she's, you know, you can get in a stew. So she's in a stew. This wasn't really new information for her, I have to say, but at this day she came to sit. She was in a real stew about it, you know? And has anybody here gotten in a stew about anything you thought about yourself since you've been here? So you know, and he really feels, this is what I am. I'm an aversive person. So she came to sit down, her and her aversive person. But because she'd done a lot of practice, and the sitting kind of reminded her to have steady awareness. But the reason we haven't had a schedule is because we want you to remember steady awareness everywhere, not just sitting. But anyway, it reminded her she's sitting. So she starts watching the aversion and the thoughts in her mind and the images and how the aversion was manifesting as thoughts. But then she just was watching what came and she said, you know what? Yeah, there were some aversive thoughts, maybe 10%. There were some really loving thoughts. There were times of no thoughts and just moods of compassion. There were times when there was nothing to do with me at all and just hearing and seeing and sensing in the body. And then there were times of generosity and then there was other all kinds of stuff was arising. None of it was any more her than any of the rest of it. But she saw how the clinging to the aversive thoughts and the idea, the view, the Sakaya Ditti, I am an aversive person, that's a clinging. There was still no more aversive or less aversive thoughts when she was just watching with awareness, aversive thoughts come, the mood was there, and then they would go. Sure, they arise. There was a conditioning that led to a, a, a fair amount of aversive thoughts. That doesn't make it her. It's the conditioning that comes that goes. So with a steady awareness, if you really, we start to have steady awareness, there's no way we can really stick to the idea of I am this or I am that or I am this type of a person. You just can't. We try hard. But because you can't help but see the change. And this isn't like a suffering thing to see. This is incredibly freeing. All these different aspects in which I'm talking about it. It's incredibly freeing. The question comes up a lot, you know, why would I want to see things (laughs) this way? Why would I want to recognize consciously, moment to moment, the instability in the world, in my life, in my body? It's because that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Joseph Goldstein, one of his little remarks, is, you know, anything can happen at any time. That's really true. And then the reaction of, but oh my God, you know, I think you can feel that. Why do I want to live like that? Like live in fear. Anything can happen at any time. But that's not awareness. That's fear. And the fear comes up because we're looking ahead and thinking, what if this happens? What if that happens? We have no clue what's going to happen. We have no clue what's going to happen in the next moment. 
But we think we do, right? We think, you think I'm going to keep on talking and you're wondering how much longer. And <laughs> you're going to be sitting here and then the bell's going to ring and then, you know, we'll say something and you'll walk or whatever. And, come. and it's actually kind of scary that more or less that happens because that can lock us into assuming permanence. So one thing I like to play with when I have the space on retreat is to just start to notice not only when there's change, but how am I assuming permanence? I don't mean thinking about this a lot, but just noticing that. Notice how the mind assumes permanence when you sit down and, I, I just pick sitting, it could be walking or anything. You sit down and your back's hurting, or you're restless, and right away the mind goes, oh, 45 more minutes, right? Right then, we think it's going to go forever. And people have told me, various people here just on their cheek, with having some really intense Um, physical, emotional states going on for quite a while and suddenly a shift in the relationship in mind, a shift into awareness and it's gone like that. Gone like that. How could that be? How could that be? And it's almost we can start wondering how could it be instead of really notice the goneness. And so really notice when something is gone. This is silly, but it was like a big insight. And sometimes you get big insights with little mundane stuff. I was eating on a retreat. Very careful mindfulness, chewing, 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 which we can do in a, in a style of practice where we're really being focused. Chewing, chewing, you feel the food, you taste the taste. By the way, after two chews, the taste is gone. Did you ever notice that? Chewing, chewing, <laughs> chewing. And then it isn't so pleasant, so you chew in a hurry so you can take the next taste. Notice it sometime. <laughs> Chewing, chewing, feeling it, swallowing, you feel it going down, and notice I'm feeling, oh, here, whatever it was I was eating, it's going down, feeling the sensation, the food's going down. But then I saw so clearly, it was a story in my mind, the food is going down. (laughs) That was a story. The experience was chewing, chewing, there was the mashed up food, and then I swallowed, and what I was calling food, that experience, that was gone. That was gone, completely gone. There was some feeling in my esophagus, but calling it the food I was chewing was just an idea. <laughs> I know, it seems silly, I know. But these are the stuff that insights is made of. <laughs> and just keep seeing that it, each moment was completely different. And my, in my mind, calling it food, doing all this stuff, was giving this solidity to things. Just moment, what's it now? What's the experience now? What's the experience now? Noticing the goneness. Noticing how you assume permanence in any way here, as I just mentioned, with mind states, with thinking we know what's going to happen, assuming we know. And noticing how when you sit down, you don't know how your body's going to feel in the next second. We, we, do you have one clue what your next thought is going to be? What the next feeling's going to come up in the body? What sound's going to come? What sight's going to be there? Every moment is completely new and fresh, you know? And seeing that isn't scary. That's where the interest, where the aliveness, we really land in the middle of life. It's our thinking we know that kind of, you know, keeps us in that, when someone says, day talking about the routine, you know, you go on and on and on, because we're not awake in it. And so um, somehow we can want that soothing of the same, the same, the same. But we really like, no two minutes are ever the same. You can't eat the same brownie. The second bite's a different bite. It's usually not quite as good as the first bite. <laughs> you know, every moment is different. So noticing goneness, 
noticing, you never know what's going to happen, but notice when we think we're going to, we know what's going to happen. And just noticing how the conditions are changing so that nothing can ever stay exactly the same. And the cause and effect, you know, how our mental states are affected by the weather. Have you noticed that? I remember one retreat I, years ago in England, in Wales, and uh, I was talking to the teacher, and I'm like, I, I can't remember what my mental state was, but obviously it was England and Wales. It had rained like, you know, 27 days out of 29. It was a month-long retreat, and it was cold. Polish scout house. And it was like this house with just freezing rooms and one bathtub for the 30 of us. And it was, it was in our young days. You guys have no clue. And that's nothing compared to Burma. You guys have no clue. And um, anyway, I was... I was complaining. I was whining, obviously, about my mental state and like this, and taking what's the matter with me? Why am I? Must have been a negative one, right? Why am I so depressed? Or why don't I have energy? Or why is my head heavy? He just looks at me and goes, "It's the weather. You can't you can't claim everything as being you. You know, it's all all affected by each other, and none of it's personal. Just looking and seeing that. So noticing this." Notice when we try to repeat a beautiful state, when we try to repeat an experience and then blame ourselves because we couldn't. Nothing's ever the same, ever the same. As I said, why would we want to perceive this constant change? This is really the perception of anicca, impermanence, cultivated, just noticed, and repeatedly noticed. It cuts through the habit of clinging and fear. It's what really moves our perception. It's what moves our heart beyond clinging and fear. It releases us from that. The Buddha, the Buddha spoke of liberation of heart, of mind, through non-clinging. It's the non-clinging heart and mind that recognizes reality accurately that frees us from fear and confusion. And recognizing, even just for a moment, how much stuff is changing. This, this flow, this conditioning, this, you know, everything's a verb. It's not, there can be moments of fear. That's just habit. Fear just comes and goes as conditions too. But, it, you know, I find it opens us to, to the mystery, to the wonder of life, to the sense of there's only this moment and we just appreciate it so much more. It's not about... Um, adding to our suffering. It really releases us, even just in a moment, to so much more appreciation and contentment, really. Contentment, because this is all there is. Ajahn Sumedho said once, I heard him say once, he said, contentment and gratitude are very supportive states for awakening. They're also reflective of the heart and mind. That's Really resting at ease, as the Tibetans say, resting at ease in whatever arises. So it's resting at ease, but only for the second, just in this, in this, in this, in this. And it really, um, you could say that, uh, for me it feels like it opens us into the possibility, even for a moment, of radical trust in awareness, in the Dhamma of life is just as it is in this moment, can't be any different, doesn't need to be any different, and the freedom of heart and mind that manifests as compassion, as love, 
is available only in radical trust in this moment. However this moment is, doesn't matter. And out of that, out of that, um, really the wonder, the opening to the mystery, it's not that we can't function. Um, Guy Armstrong has a quotation he likes to give of a Zen master who was asked, um, what is the effect of a lifetime of practice? And his answer was, an appropriate response. (laughs) When we're not, you know, distorted our perception, when we're really opening into the wonder, into the mystery, into just the sensitivity of this moment, whatever arises can be met with appropriateness, doing the obvious, whether it's a compassionate action, whether it's equanimity, whether it's just being present, whatever it may be, whether it's getting yourself out of the way of harm, you know, an appropriate response. So I will just end with a little poem from Hafiz, you know, the Persian poet, called Deepening the Wonder. Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks, and as the master poured for the drink, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for your attention. We are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.